All right, if you will, turn with me to Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 12. Deep into the New Testament, the beginning of what we call the general epistles. And so Romans is the largest of the Pauline epistles. Hebrews is the largest of the general epistles. And if you know how the epistles uh, are organized, it's from largest to smallest, right? So you go from largest to smallest in the Pauline and then largest to smallest in the general epistles. Hebrews here is a... I mean, I don't even know what... I don't even want to try to begin to introduce the book to you because it's so beautiful that an introduction would take up probably 15 minutes and I don't want to do that to you right now. Uh, because we actually we're, we have a broader scope in mind, but we're going to springboard off Hebrews chapter twelve, and I want you to zone in here with me. Uh, and by the way, you have a uh, you should have a Bible there. I'd love for you to grab it because we're actually going to kind of do some perusing through the Old Testament and a bit through the New uh, quickly. But nonetheless, we want you to actually see it. I think it's beneficial to see where this is happening. So this is Hebrews chapter twelve, and we're going to go from eighteen. To 29. Notice these words here. This is the word of God. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. Now you know that he's talking about Sinai here, right? This happened at Sinai. They got to the mountain, it's on fire, it's earthquakes, it's storms up there, and God speaks from the mountain. They say, please don't do that again. That is terrifying. Don't do that again. Speak through somebody else. For they could not endure the order that was given. Quote, if even a beast touches the mountain... It shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, quote, I tremble with fear. But you have come, he's talking to his hearers now, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering. And to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all. And to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See, this is a warning, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, quote, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, 
indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Let us pray. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. Would You, Holy Spirit, reveal to us just as you did in revealing these words to the writers and the hearers, would you do it anew and afresh today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A pastor was called to a new church. The first Sunday the pastor was there, his message was taken from John 3.16 with the title, How to Be Born Again. This message was well received, but, but no decisions were made. Second Sunday, the pastor's message was taken from... John 3.16, with the title, How to Be Born Again. Again, no decision was made. The third Sunday, the pastor's sermon was again taken from John 3.16, with the title, How to Be Born Again. Again, no decisions were made. By this time, the deacons were a bit worried uh, about the pastor and what was happening. He just kept preaching the same thing over and over again. So they called a special meeting with the pastor to discuss his choice of sermons. One of the deacons said, don't you have any more sermons? The new pastor responded, yes, I have plenty of sermons. However, I'm going to keep preaching this sermon until you get it right. Then I will move on to something else. You say, why are we stuck again with water and fire? I'll let you figure that one out from our story, okay? No, it's this. It's very, very important to hear the words of John the Baptist and connect them deeply to Scripture because they're words for us. And that is, there's one who's coming, who has come, who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. There's a lot to say about this thing of water and fire in our life, and we've sort of dabbled in it for the past two weeks The scripture is replete with these images. They're in this room. We've talked about that. We've connected that. Even talking about what an image actually is. It's pointing to a reality. There's the reality that God is actually a consuming fire. And fire is not the actual reality. The reality is God and fire the symbol. You see how that just really changes things? It's like when somebody says... Of my children, um, Marshall, you're like Ty. I said, no, Ty's like me. It's a big difference, though, isn't it? It actually is, semantically. And that's what I'm saying about these symbols of water and fire. They've been given to us. We have to have them in our life. You've used them already in some form this past week. And we must understand the reality behind them. We must be baptized with the Holy Spirit and fire. We must be born, John says, of water and the Spirit. It's not enough just for the physical water because the water is pointing 
to a reality. It's not enough just for us to light a flame today here in this room. There must be a reality of the flame of love in our own souls. Yes, God is offering the forgiveness of sins. And that door is wide open. He loves to forgive. It's crazy, but he does. But he is offering so much more than the forgiveness of sins. The forgiveness of sins is meant to restore us. He wants to move past just trying to always be restored to God and break that and be restored to God and break that. He wants us to be on fire for him. He isn't just offering a free ride to heaven. No, we've misunderstood what this is all about. He is offering new life, a new heart, a new spirit, a new attitude, a death to your old self, and new life in the spirit and only in the spirit. Only in the spirit. It's not going to be done by me. It won't be done by you. It cannot It's not my flame. It's not your fire. Before we are saved, hear this, before we are saved, our greatest need is justification by faith. But after we are saved, our greatest need is sanctification by the Spirit. And this only happens with fire. Justification, water, new life, entrance into new life. Yes, praise the Lord for that. That's great. It has to happen. But we also must come to the fire. Or else we become Israel and turn away. Oh God, help us this morning to see our need for your fire in our life. So let's quickly take a look through the scriptures and this is one of these things where if you know the scriptures well, it's like, it's like when you get to that part in your, in, the, in your favorite song, you know, where they're building it, dun, 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 and you're just, I mean, you're, I can't wait, he's going to say it, he's going to say boom, you know, and then you're just, yeah, da, da, and then you, oh, oh <laughs> you know. Uh, some of you are going to be like, man, I, I know he's going there, I know he's going there with the fire, baby, I'm feeling it, I'm feeling that's great. Some of you, it'll be new to, to hear this. So I, I want you to, either way you come to this, let's get excited about what God shows us about his fire throughout the scripture. And the first one we want to land on, really, and you can flip here if you, if you're, if you uh, don't know where these things are, you know, write them down and look them up later. But Genesis 15 is this amazing place where God does something crazy with Abraham. And we know now that it's a suzerainty-type covenant because we actually have dug up a suzerainty-type covenant, which is a suzerain is a king or a ruler who then goes into relationship with his people. And we've actually got these on tablets now archaeologically, and we never understood this whole story, you know, at least from a contextual standpoint until we actually dug up that stuff and we're like, oh wow, this is actually the way they made covenants. So the way they made covenants was not like how we do it today. If you go buy a house or a car and you loan money out, 
you're going to have a load of paperwork with lawyers sitting around, right? And lawyers who wrote that. And lawyers who will come after you. And lawyers and lawyers and lawyers, right? And so you're just signing your life away to lawyers and the way they frame everything and all this. And that's how we make a covenant. That's not how they did it in the ancient world. How they did it in the ancient world, quickly, is this. You want to, I've got some money. You want to borrow some money from me? Okay, that's cool. Let's, um, let's gather up a calf. Yes, like a whole calf. <laughs> Let's uh, cut it in half. Now, I don't even... I mean, just think about that. Cut it in half. Let's take, let's take then a turtle dove. Let's cut it in half. Let's take a couple more animals. Cut them in half. Then we're going to put the two halves on each side here. Make a pathway in the middle. Now, that you can imagine there's blood everywhere. I mean, you've got blood all over you. The other guy, he's helping you too. Yeah, man, I can't wait for this new car, you know. You know, I mean, just, I don't even know all the sounds. I mean, this is just, I mean, just think with me here contextually like this is the way it was done, you know. Yeah, I got to buy a house, so let's, let's get the animals out. And they're halved. I mean, here are these carcasses, and there's a pathway between them. So then I would walk through and I'd say, I'm going to lend you X amount of money, and if I don't, then you can do what you've done here with these animals to me. And then you would walk through and say, if I don't pay you back, you can um, cut me in half like these animals here. And I mean, I think the object lesson's pretty clear, isn't it? What, what's going to happen? I mean, I don't think you need any explanation from a lawyer, right? I mean, it's a, I think it's pretty clear, right? Here's what happens. God says, you know what, Abraham, I'm going to go into a relationship with you. A covenant. So Abraham says, okay, let's see. You know, he splits all the animals. You can read it later. Splits all, makes this pathway, and then God comes. And when God comes, Abraham goes into this sleep. I don't know how else to put it. It's so heavy. His presence is so heavy. It's like the transfiguration we talked about. They, they literally are just down on their face. They basically are almost asleep because it's so bright. It's black. It's just night because of the brightness. And there's this smoking pot, fire pot, with a torch hanging out of it that's also on fire. And the pot moves through at dusk, moves through these animal carcasses, and God says... I promise to always be with you, to bless you, and make your name great. And if I don't, I swear by myself, I'll be split in half. That's what he's saying here. Abraham never walks through. God only swears by himself. Because really, that's the highest thing to swear by if you're God, right? We can swear by, I swear to God, you know, people say that. Well, that is a higher being than you are, for sure. But God, there's no higher, there's, there's no higher thing. It's kind of like me the other day, I went to the, to the dentist, you know, and I've never had, thanks be to God, any cavities in my, in my teeth, so I really don't even do the x-rays anymore. I'm just always like, nah, decline x-ray, decline x-ray, decline x-ray. She's like, you know, it's been like three and a half years since you had an x-ray, right? I'm like, well, I'll do it next time. Just, and she said, well, I'm going to put your name on here so that you are the, are the authority for yourself when you come in next, right? That's what God's doing here. He's putting his name on the paper. says, if I don't do it, then I'm not God. I'll be like these animals split in half. This smoking fire pot. Now, go to Exodus 3 and you'll find the burning bush, right? 
Powerful, powerful text. Here's Moses, the next huge character that comes on the scene. Right when you get into Exodus, we actually read from that this morning. And there's this bush that doesn't burn up. And he, well, that's an interesting sight. That thing should have been burned up a long time ago and it just keeps going. So he goes over there and the bush says, stop, take off your shoes, buddy. You're on holy ground. Quickly, what's being communicated is this. You don't approach God how you want to approach God. There is a way to approach God. And you don't approach him as if he's common. He is not common. He is holy. And there's going to be something different happening when he's around. And that is the holy ground. You don't approach me as if I'm just regular because I'm not. I could lash out of this bush and burn you to pieces You don't know yet who I am, but you will. Because Moses later, right, he says, God, I want to see you. I want to see you, Lord. He's a friend of God. You know, you say, yeah, friends see each other. So let me see you. And he goes, well, here's the problem. If you see me, if you see my face, you'll die. You'll be toast. So here's what I'll do. I'll show you my back. I'll show you my back. I won't look at you because if I look at you, you'll be dead. But I'll show you my back. So he puts him in the you know, cleft of the rocks, right? Where he can only kind of see straight out. And God passes before him. And you know the description that's given? It's not, man, his trapezius muscles were legit. It wasn't like, man, his latissimus dorsi was so formed. That's nuts. You're really bulked up, God. That wasn't the description. Instead, the Lord is holy. He keeps covenant for all generations. He always does what he says he's going to do. That's the description. Then you get in Exodus 13, quickly as we're moving through, you get this pillar of fire, right? Cloud by day, pillar of fire at night. You remember this? They're they're leaving Egypt and God is in front of them, it says. And the cloud didn't leave them, it says, in Exodus 13. Then in Leviticus, we won't go, go to the exact place, but Nadab and Abihu, you remember these guys? They're Aaron's sons. And God says, this is the way I want things done. If you're going to come into my presence, then this is the way I want it done. I want this kind of wood and these measurements. I want you to do this before you go in and that before you go out. And what do they do? Ah, he's surely kidding about this, right? I mean, we can save a little money here, you know, and go down and get the cheap stuff from Walmart. And so this weird wood that he wants. And so they crank up the fire with the wood from Walmart, the cheap stuff, and God burns them up. Now, if you were a priest coming in there after that and you still smelled the burning flesh of a person in there, are you going to disobey? I think that'd be pretty clear, right? Man, yikes. Fire. Of course, in, in all of this too, you have Mount Sinai, which we've already mentioned, on fire. He comes off the mountain glowing. Then you have Mount Carmel. Do you remember this? Elijah. This is in uh, 1 Kings 18. And just, just quickly turn there. This is the, uh, the historical books we're now 
Now, uh, jumping into, and so go to 1 Kings 18. Just look at these words. Now, we're not going to read the whole thing, but, but I just want to drop down and, and show you something here. Uh, you remember this, right? There were 450 prophets of Baal. All right? There were 400 prophets of Asherah. And Asherah and Baal, they were, they were cohorts, right? They were, that was his consort. Um, and so that was his, uh, his wife or lover or whatever. Um, and so one is male, one is female. And, and you remember what happens this day, right? They're out there. They're cutting themselves. You're like, why are they cutting themselves? Because blood shows that you're serious. It's kind of like maybe when you were a kid, you're like, let's be blood brothers. You know, I never did that. I thought it was too gross. But maybe somebody in here did that, you know, where you kind of cut yourself and maybe shake hands or something. You know, blood is, means you're serious. And so they're trying to, and, and Elijah just starts making fun of them. I'm sorry, did your God, did he need to go to the restroom maybe? I mean, do you, do you need a little more time uh, for him to, him to be back? Or so, did he go on vacation? Like, what's going on here? And then all of a sudden, God answers from heaven. Notice this. This is 1 Kings 18 and then 38. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. Wow, that's, that's pretty, pretty hot fire to actually melt stone, nothing left. I mean, that's pretty serious. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. The fire fell. God displayed who He was. Then in Isaiah 6, right? This beautiful vision that Isaiah has as his call to be a prophet. And in Isaiah 6, it's, it's, you kind of just have to turn over there real quick. He's the first of the prophets here in the prophet section. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. And with two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. Seraphim, seraph, that's fire. These are fire angels. If you remember in the Matrix when he sees seraph. You remember this, this guy in the, in the Matrix. He sees this guy seraph in the, in the Matrix code. He's on fire. Because that's what seraph means. These are, these are fire angels. And guess what happens next? He says, oh Lord, I, I'm a person with unclean lips. Will you please purify me and my, and my people? And so the fire angel has to take tongs to get out a coal because it's so hot. A fire angel. And touches Isaiah's lips. How would you feel about that? purification through fire. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. The foundation of the threshold shook at the voice of Him who called and the house was filled with smoke. How do you get smoke? Fire! This is a flaming scene of enthronement. And He says, woe is me! And then of course, 
that scene happens with the seraphim, and then the Lord calls him to a people that aren't going to listen. Everybody always stops there and like, man, that was an awesome scene. And then God's like, all right, Isaiah, that was cool and everything. Now go and speak to people who are never going to come down to the altar. They're never going to hear. They're never going to repent. Go to them. Speak the word. Hope that's not us. You know, everybody's always worried, it seems like, with the question of what happens to the person on the other side of the world who never hears the gospel. Like, what's God going to do with them? I mean, seriously, what's he going to do? I have to just stop him and say, I don't think that's the right question. I know people say there are no dumb questions, but there really are sometimes. I would never tell anybody that that asked, though. <laughs> just kind of goes through my head, but no. The right question is this, not what happens to the person who never has heard. What happens to the person who hears all the time? It's on our phones. It's on social media. It's in our, we have 13 Bibles. We've got Bibles galore. Jesus is all over the place, it seems, on billboards. What happens to those people who hear all the time and never do a thing? What happens to them? Because that's us, friends. We're flooded with every resource possible to know Jesus. I mean, this is the God you're hearing from these stories. This is the God who spoke the Son into existence. Just be. And not only one Son, billions of sons. He just says, be, and it does. The ocean in its magnitude. Stop here. I control you. The storms, the seasons, even down to mathematical equations. We're sitting there watching the, uh, the eclipse, and Christopher's got this, you know, five, four, three, and it's perfect. Why? Because God planned it out like that. He's mathematical. And yet, yet, All of creation, everything in creation, obeys him to the second. But we say, no. How can that turn out good? Honestly. No. Like some spoiled, rotten kid, no. You can't do that in my life. Not with my money. Not with my time. Not with my kids. Not with my job. No. Do you know who you're talking to when you say that? I don't I think sometimes we just forget. In these church Jesus is my homeboy. I'm like, I have to ask I have asked somebody before. I'm like, it is that all right? Homeboy? Like John, you know, the, not the Baptist, but John the Apostle, he stays with Jesus for three and a half years. But when he sees him resurrected in Revelation, he just go, what's up, my dog? You know, if you read the first Revelation, he falls on his face as if he were dead. 
Because his eyes are flaming like fire. His voice is the sound of a hundred waterfalls. He can't even properly see him. He's shining so much with jewels in him. With a name that no one can even say. (laughs) I have to ask myself, even do I worship God like that? What do we see him as, some old man in heaven? Whistles when he talks? Like what? They can't really see properly. Oh, it's okay. It's all right. No, no, it's fine to do that and to lie and do this. I think somehow we've missed something, haven't we? I might break out into preaching if I go further. Ezekiel. Ezekiel. We don't even have to go there, but if you just want to look it up, it's Ezekiel 1. Ezekiel shows this throne that has wheels moving here and there and and angels multitudes of angels are flashing like lightning at this throne room scene and the wheels are on fire his his throne is on i call it the first hot wheels it's on fire whole thing's on fire he's like come on ezekiel come up come up and see me Are you sure? Are you sure? <laughs> and then, of course, Daniel's throne room scene, right? I mean, you, you, I'm sorry, you have to look at this one. Just please go to... We, I know we covered Daniel, but this is just... It's too good to pass up. This is, this is beautiful. Go to Daniel 7. Just look real quick. Daniel 7 and 9. As I looked, thrones were placed... And the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head was pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. I mean, you talk about a bad news king. It's like, his his throne is on fire. And he's like, yeah, this is where I sit. I mean, that's pretty awesome, I think, in anybody's book. And then notice that a stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands. And we talked about that, remember? That all, their, their biggest number was a thousand thousands. You know, not a Google or something like that. Not infinity. It was a thousand thousands served him. And ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. That's not a scene in the past. He was seeing something that will happen one day. Brothers and sisters, it will happen one day. You say, why are you getting so fired up? Because we're talking about fire, friends. And one day, one day, we will stand there. You, this is one thing that keeps me going when I don't want to go anymore is one day every person that we meet will stand before this God. This God. Not a God that we've idolatrized in our head, or made up in our mind, or heard about on the TV or the radio. This God. And the books are going to be open, and those books contain every deed we do. 
Every one of them. That can't be good news for people like me or people like you. Accept that he invites us in. Accept that he wants to erase those things and start writing a new story. A story to display the works of God in our life. But friend, if there are no works and there are continually no fruit, then you must ask, is there a flame of God in my life at all? Has it gone out? It can be rekindled. (laughs) He can issue that stream of fire today in me, in you. And we could go on. John the Baptist, preached, he's a fiery preacher, yes, but he talks about the Holy Spirit and fire. Jesus, who says, wait for the promise of the Father. The promise comes, who is the Holy Spirit in flaming tongues of fire. Flaming tongues of fire. And we're not even going to crack open the book of Revelation. There's too much fire. We're going to instead move to this question. What is all of this saying? What does any of this mean for us, for me, for you? What is God trying to communicate to us? And I think it's this. At base, it's this. This sums up all of what I said before about his presence being in fire, his passion, his purity. But it's all love. It's love. Love, the poets, have you ever noticed this? The poets always recognize love as a burning fire, right? I mean, even Johnny Cash, right? What's his line? Love is a burning thing, right? Or something like that. I can't get the tune right, but, and it makes a fiery ring. You know, I can't sing like that. But, you know, you know it's the ring of fire. You think of Cupid, right? Everybody, everybody identifies Cupid. Why do we identify Cupid? Because he's, he's blinded by love. That's what love does. It blinds us. And God seems to be, doesn't he seem to be blind to who I am? He wants me. He actually wants me and all my bumbling mistakes and insecurities and inadequacies. He says, come on, let's do this. He's blinded by love. God is. And yet he sees everything at the same time. You know, Cupid has a bow and a torch, right? Because... Love just, I mean, when love strikes, it's, it's hot and heavy. It starts spreading like wildfire. It's not meant to be contained. And our love for God shouldn't be contained. I think this is what, what you know, Jesse was trying to say to us earlier is, is, you know what? However it comes out, just let it come out. Be like David. Even though people are making fun of him because of what he's doing, he doesn't care. He's doing it for God. He's doing it because he loves God. What are you doing because you love God? Can other people see it or is it some hidden thing? Jesus meets us in the fire. This is where he meets us. And that's both good and bad news. It really is. It depends on how we approach him. When someone in the New Testament talks about the risen Lord, the exalted Christ, it is always the Father and then the Son being seated beside him, enthroned in a place of authority. 
Because he's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords and he's worthy of that position of authority. He's seated there, but not in the book of Acts, chapter 7. Not there. Instead, there we get a scene where Stephen is being martyred. He's being murdered by the religious leaders. They don't want to hear it. Jesus isn't seen sitting here. Instead, he's standing in honor of Stephen. It's the only place in the Bible where Jesus is standing at the Father's right hand. The king gets up and stands because he's a martyr. You know that term martyr means witness. That's what it means. It can mean death, but it can mean you living your life in witness. We're all called to sacrifice our life, whether we live or whether we die, for him because he's worthy. And that's what love does. That's what that flame of love in our heart will lead us to. He stands to welcome his friend in the deepest moment of his plight, his death. The king stands and he stands in honor of this precious murdered martyr. You see, the point is Jesus meets us in our suffering. And some of us are suffering. Some of us are in a bad place. He wants to meet us there. Didn't he meet the three boys, the three Hebrew boys in Daniel, in the fire, in the fiery flames of Nebuchadnezzar's pit? (laughs) He did. Who is that, a fourth one? Looks like the son of one of the gods. Oh, yeah. (laughs) You didn't know who he was, Nebuchadnezzar, but that's the son of God. So whether God spares us or whether God spares us from this life or keeps us here, we must be a witness, a fire for him, a flame, a light to the nations, a city set on a hill. So is fire the reality that describes your life in Christ? Or has it become dampened? Have we noticed the terminology? Have we, and this is the end, have we quenched the Holy Spirit? Quench, poured water on the fire. Have we done that? Has the world done that? Have we become so concerned with everything else that the flame is so dim that no one sees it anymore? It doesn't have to be like that. We can look to the light himself, and if we are willing to move out of the way, the light will shine. I'll end with this. Ty, a couple months back, you know, we had a glare of the sun that was coming into the room that looked pretty cool, right? And everybody's like, oh, look at that. And I'm like, guys, look at this, look at this. I can't see it. I can't see it. I can't. You know, he gets angry quick. You know, he's got a short fuse. Um, I can't see it. I can't. I said, son, move out of the light. He was standing right in the way of it. Move out of the light and it'll shine. We think it's our job to shine. No, no, no. Our job is to bow down our face to God and his light will shine out of our life. We won't have to make it up. I don't want you to make it up. Let it shine though. Let it shine. Let his light shine in you. Do you know that sanctifying fire? You can today. He want if you're saved, you say I'm saved, good, going to heaven, then be sanctified by faith today. If you're not saved, 
be justified today by faith. Seek His face. Burn with desire for Him. And let Him purify everything in your life. Amen.